Welcome to Wallachia. Previously, the Principality of Wallachia had its share of problems long before it came to be ruled by a vampire. Marley, who left town several years ago to attend a dance academy in Transylvania, returned home with an injured leg. She attends her sister's first communion, then meets up with friends Ion and Kwasi at the celebration afterward. The festivities are interrupted when several vehicles ride through the village square. Looking out from one of the carriages, Marley sees a man with dark, almost red-seeming eyes. Who, who is that? That, said Ion, is a nobleman from Transylvania that Domnul Negrescu has been looking forward to hosting for some time. That, Ion nodded to the passing train of wagons, is Count Dracula. Chapter 2. 680 Steps 680 steps led up to the castle from the lower gate in the village, except on days when it was 675 or 683. Eon had climbed those steps hundreds of times, but the count never seemed to stay the same. The other way up was the road, which was less steep but a longer route. Most days saw at least some traffic to the castle with deliveries or other business, so if he timed it right, he could hop on a carriage or wagon, but the whole town was still enjoying the feast and dancing. No one else would be going up tonight. Castello Argish sat on the high hills overlooking the village and the river beyond. By design, you could see its rear face and three of its sharp turrets from anywhere in the village. A wide balcony off the castle's main hall allowed its occupants a nice view of the town below. It was, of course, too high up for its residents to address the people, but Eon imagined Domniel Negascru's ancestors insisting on a roost from which they'd be able to look down on the village. The family claimed to be descendants of Radu Negru, the legendary voivode of Wallachia who rebelled against Hungary and took the land for himself. This lineage was unverifiable, but whatever the actual facts of Radu's progeny, the family was powerful enough that no one openly questioned them, so it had become accepted as truth. A short way down river on the opposite bank were the ruins of Cetacea Poneri, which had once been home to Wallachian warlords. In 1680, the family had decided that its manor house in the village didn't befit the image it wanted to project for itself, so it ordered the creation of a similar fortress on the hills above the village. It had been completed in the 1720s when the great-grandfather of its current lord, Negriscu Radu, was young. The enslaved Romani workers who carried this stone up the mountain had been in no position to object, but if they had been, they might have pointed out that the village already had a fortified church that was perfectly capable of sheltering the citizenry in the event of invasion. Toward the end of the construction, a brief period of unrest involving the annexation of Voltania from Wallachia had bolstered the family's resolve in building the impressive fortress, but, in truth, Domniel Negascru's ancestors had little actual interest in protecting their people from a rampaging horde. Rather, they felt their station deserved an austere castle on a hill, so they built one. In his official capacity, Domniel Negerscrew was one of two Isprovniks for the Argush district. He was the local governor and legal authority and was responsible for the collection of taxes. None of this affected Eon much. His chief concern lately was staying in Adrian's good graces so he didn't have to do any duty in the menagerie. Several months ago, Domniel Negerscrew had appropriately announced his desire to build a small pen for wild animals near the castle's ornamental garden. He'd always kept dogs, and the house had several cats that kept the rodent population down, but the new spot which the household staff had taken to calling the Menagerie, now contained a few swans, two peacocks, a large snake, and a pair of pure white foxes. The castle hadn't had any major visitors in some time, and Adrian didn't like for his staff to sit around playing games all day. A few times over the last month when he'd found the footmen sitting idle, he'd sent them outside to help the ground staff with the animals' pens. Eon expected that the Count's arrival would keep him busy enough that this wouldn't be a problem. When Eon arrived, he found Cornell waiting in the servants' common room. Cornell, personal aide to Negrescu Nicolay, son of Radu, looked to be in the middle of something when one of the Count's men entered. Short and exceedingly skinny, Cornell was the type who tried his absolute hardest at everything he did, but if any decision was left to him, he invariably made the wrong choice. Ah, uh, here, said the man, Cornell, he said, introducing himself in a weak bow. Welcome. This is Eon, one of the castle staff. He'd be happy to assist you. 
Cornell excused himself and headed down one of the corridors to the storerooms. Herr Eon, I am Wilhelm. This is Friedrich. We hoped that you could give us a brief tour of the grounds while our men set up here in the house. Tonight, asked Eon, wouldn't you rather wait until morning? I'm afraid our captain has asked us to go presently. The guards were both a year or two older than Eon. Nineteen, maybe twenty. Friedrich was blonde, Willem darker. They both wore long black coats with red trim and brass buttons. Their accents suggested they were from Transylvanian Saxon towns. Both were handsome, with fair complexions and a cool efficiency to their manner. Eon had always been enthralled by the trappings of military tradition and was happy to give them their tour. The castle's gardens began just outside the servants' entrance, to the right of the main gates. It was dark, but the nearly full moon provided a good deal of light to complement their lanterns. Eon led them to the gardens, stopping to point out the menagerie, but neither seemed very interested in actually taking in the sights. Instead, they asked to be shown to the path to the forest edge. Once there, Willems whispered some things to Friedrich, who nodded, then said to Eon, Yes, thank you. We have some other matters to attend to. You'll accompany us back to the gates? Returning to the driveway, the two loaded a great square box with handles of thick rope from one of their wagons onto a smaller cart. Eon asked if they needed help, but William said, Thank you, no. You've been very helpful. I'm sure you have other duties. Re-entering the servant's common room by the side door, Eon ran into one of the cooks. There you are, she said. Cornell was going mad trying to find a bottle of wine Adrian said to bring up. He had to go up a few minutes ago and tell him he can't find it. The male household staff included head butler Adrian, Vlad, personal attendant to Negerscrew Radu, Cornell, personal attendant to Negerscrew Nicolay, and Stefan and Eon, who worked as footmen. All but Eon had rooms in the castle. He lived in the village with his parents, but slept in one of the spare servants' rooms when the job required him to stay late or be there early. In addition to this group were gardeners, a groom, the female staff of cooks and maids, and any number of tradesmen who came up from the village to do whatever Adrian required. When someone like the Count visited, either Stefan or Jan was typically assigned to either attend to him personally if he hadn't brought his own servant, or to work with his servants as go-between for whatever they might need. Since Jan had only just arrived and Adrian hadn't asked him, he had assumed the job had been given to Stefan, but when he went into the common room, he found him sitting at the table. 29 years old, Stefan had been working in the castle for most of his life. Learning to read had been hard for him, and he'd stopped attending classes at the school tower at age nine. He'd wanted to go work with his father, who made deliveries for local merchants to towns all over the country. His mother, who did not fully trust her husband while he was away, had forbidden it and instead sent him to work with a cousin as a carpenter in the castle. He didn't turn out to be good with his hands, but, having inherited the same affability that made his father a good salesman, quickly befriended the entire staff. When Stefan turned 16, Adrian offered him a job as a junior footman. You didn't know where it was either? Adrian mentioned it about five times Friday, said Eon. Stefan shrugged. Wine bottle aside, you could have stayed home. Adrian said they were coming Monday. I figured that meant, you know, during the day on Monday, not Sunday night. I didn't mean to leave you to do all the reading and unloading yourself. No, I mean, they didn't want any help. Seems the Count has his own people and they do everything. Didn't want us to unload anything or do nothing. What are they doing now? Don't know. I guess those two are out digging a hole or whatever their captain ordered them to do. The Count's in the hall with the family. If you know where that wine bottle is, you should take it up. Eon took the bottle from Adrian's office and headed down the hall. By design, most main rooms in the castle were accessible via one of its turrets. A rule in most large houses is that servants should take the path that keeps them below decks for the longest amount of time possible, so as to minimize how much they were seen. Beneath the main floor of the castle were assorted storerooms, the kitchen, butler's office, and the servants' common room. Using the basement corridors, one could move about under the castle and up the turrets to enter a room directly without having to use its main door. Eon took the hallway to the central tower, climbed up one flight of stairs, and approached the hall's servant door from with the wine bottle. Strength of the Wallachian blood has always been as such, said a confident voice from the other side of the door that Eon assumed to be the Count's. Eon quietly entered the room to see a tall man with pale skin speaking to Domnul Negescrew and his son Nicolay. 
along the edges of the room were the Count's guard captain, one of his men, and the attending household staff. Yon quietly closed the door, which matched the walls around it so perfectly that it was nearly invisible unless he knew about it. Count Dracula continued, Once the great Dacian Empire spanned this noble land to be replaced by the Romans and the Turks, the Austrians and Hungarians, the Russians, all have laid a claim on this land, but your proud people have remained, taking the best of their blood and building from it a bold, strong race. The blood, you see, is life. The main door to the hall opened and a woman with dark hair came in. Ah, Count Dracula, may I please introduce my wife, Duamna Negescru Nadia. Duamna Negescru moved next to her son. Her red lips gave a practiced smile. When they stood next to each other, one could see the immediate resemblance. They were the same height. Nikolay had light blue eyes where hers were dark, but otherwise shared her features. Straight, nearly black hair, milk-white skin, and a slightly curved nose which on her looked striking, but on him more severe. The Count rose and moved to greet the lady of the house. As he did, his cloak flowed around him in such a way that his body didn't seem to appear to require any effort of movement. Rather, he seemed to simply float. Eon wondered how long one had to practice in front of a mirror to attain that level of cape mastery. The Count, giving Duomna Negescru a courtly bow, said, I am Dracula. I give my thanks to you and your husband for inviting me freely into your house. I am sure I will enjoy my stay in your beautiful land. Eon moved quietly to the table along the wall, set three glasses on a tray, and filled them with the wine Adrian had selected. After the Count had finished exchanging pleasantries, Eon took the glasses and stood near Duomna Negescru, who took one without removing her gaze from the Count. Eon remained holding his tray. A glass after your long journey, Count? asked Domnul Negescru. Thank you, no. I don't at present feel the need to drink, the Count paused to wave Eon off. Wine tonight. The Count resumed his discussion of Transylvania and the two principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia in local politics, which Eon followed with great interest until he was dismissed. He left discreetly through the tower's hidden door. Downstairs, activity had died down. Since the Count himself wasn't taking a meal, the cooks had served stew for his men and then packed up the kitchen. Stefan had gone up to bed, and the maids had been chased out by the Count's guards, who, after their meal, had insisted that they be allowed to make up his room. Eon stayed for a few minutes before deciding to go get some sleep as well. On his way, he saw Cornell, which meant that Nikolai had also gone up to bed, and that the Count's reception was likely over. From Eon's perspective, the next day was mostly uneventful. He'd slept in the castle that night instead of going back down to the village, expecting there to be a lot of work to do the next day. Because the Count insisted on using his own men for everything, there didn't end up being much to do. Still, a few events were out of the ordinary. Once all the morning's chores were finished, the servants sat in their common room to have tea and exchange their normal gossip. Tell them about this morning, Lucia, said one of the housemaids. Hmm? asked Stefan. Lucia began her story, but kept her voice low, a little nervous about spreading rumors about their guests. Not that it wasn't commonplace for them to talk about visitors, but something about the Count and his men made everyone uneasy. I was going downstairs to check on the rooms. Household staff members who lived in the castle had rooms on the third floor of the south wing. Guests stayed on the second floor. If they traveled with servants, they'd typically be put on the third floor as well. But as it was, the Count had all his men staying on the second floor with him. Well, I was headed down the south tower, not thinking about much, when I saw it. For a second, I thought it was a dead body. I almost shrieked out loud. It was one of his men, lying completely still in the stairwell. Did the guards get drunk last night? asked Eon. No, I barely saw them, said Stefan. The two you sent out to the woods came in and washed up, then got two more of their buddies and carried that heavy box over to the south wing. Don't know what's in that thing or why they needed it upstairs. Then they ate a little and that was it. Didn't see them the rest of the night. I did, said Iona, the other housemaid. I was making up the beds when two of them came in. Said they needed to move a few things. I didn't see all they did, but they moved the big mirror in the Count's room. I thought they should have asked Adrian first, but they'd already started and I wasn't of a mind to confront them. 
I don't think he was drunk, said Lucia, continuing her story. He looked sick. He was pale and his breathing was, I don't know, weak. Well, anyway, just after I saw him, one of his friends found him and helped him up and carried him to this room. The group talked for a while more until the maids had to leave to tend the fires. As they were leaving, Cornell came into the common room with two of the Count's guard, its captain and a younger man. Stefan and the maids dispersed. Eon rose to greet the newcomers. Eons and Cornell meet Evgeny, captain of the Count's guard, the noble order of the dragon, and his man, Friedrich. Eon nodded to the pair. Evgeny was probably in his forties, fit but a little heavy around the waist, with a silver mustache. Friedrich he met the night before. Cornell offered chairs to the Transylvanians and retrieved hunks of bread and cheese for them. Friedrich sat down across from Eon, but Evgeny spied something on one of the shelves on the wall. Ah, a paths and peasants set. Have a go, Friedrich. He took a small, flat wooden box from the shelf and put it between the two younger men. Do you play as well? Eon nodded. Originally from India, paths and peasants had been brought north by traders, where it had grown in popularity over the years throughout the region. The board featured a set of hand-painted paths that wound through depictions of villages, farms, and forests, all converging on a single space. The pieces had been carved from a soft wood. More ornate sets might be made of silver or ivory. Each player started with four pieces, a peasant, a soldier, a nobleman, and a priest. The goal was to advance as many pieces as possible to the final space, which, at least in the version that had evolved for European play, represented that your kingdom had successfully conquered and ruled the land. As the guest, Friedrich took the first turn deploying his piece, placing the knight in the forward position with the noble nearby and the priest and peasant in the paths further from the goal. Jan took a more balanced approach, putting each at roughly the same distance away. Friedrich played aggressively. Each turn, the player earned coins, represented by small, shiny pebbles in this set, that he could use to advance a piece or, if enough were saved up, upgrade it. A soldier could become a knight, a nobleman, a king, etc., Friedrich used his turns to constantly force Eon back so that he couldn't make much progress, though it meant Friedrich made little progress himself. Eon played reactively. He'd consider each piece individually and make the best possible move for that particular piece. Eon had a good moment when he was able to convert his priest to a bishop, which allowed his peasant and soldier to move further each turn. But in the end, Friedrich's strategy won out when his nobleman crossed the finish line first. Ah, good play, young hare. Well done, said Evgeny, patting his man on the back. Friedrich rose stiffly and shook hands with Eon. Taking his defeat in good cheer, Eon thought it would at least make a good story to tell Kwasi. The rest of the day was spent doing assorted chores. When Adrian said he didn't have further need of Eon, he started for the gates, where he knew a wagon would be leaving soon for the village. In one of the downstairs corridors, he found Stefan, who was balancing a hammer by its handle on the edge of his finger. What are you up to? asked Eon. Stefan laughed. Nothing, actually. Figure if I stand around holding a hammer, people will assume I'm in the middle of fixing something and leave me alone. The balancing act takes away from the effect some. Try a logbook, maybe, said Eon. Just walk around with it like you're doing inventory. Nah, don't even want to pretend to. Done enough of that lately. Stefan, Cornell, and Eon were all supposed to do inventory each week. Depending on Adrian's needs, it involved taking stock of the wine supply, ensuring food deliveries have been logged correctly, and taking lists from the workers of what supplies they needed. Early in the spring, they'd managed to stick Cornell with the whole job one day, and he'd made so many mistakes in one afternoon that it was weeks before the cooks had been able to plan a menu correctly. For a while, Cornell was forbidden from going anywhere near the stores, and Adrian had only recently allowed him to go in even to retrieve single items. Eon was just moving on toward the exit when Vlad, Domnil Negerscrew's valet, came rushing through. Careful, he said, Adrian's that way. Seems something happened to the swans last night and he's livid. He was interrogating all the groundskeepers. Oh, thanks, said Eon. What happened with the swans? One of them's dead, said Adrian. One of the dogs, or a wolf? Do you imagine that I stuck around asking questions? I've got enough to worry about. The Isprovnik stir-crazy. 
He wanted to show the count around the castle, but he's been sleeping all day. Figuring that was enough, Eon turned the other way, went up to the tower and out the main gate, and caught a wagon down the hill. What was he like? Hmm? The count. Eon had wanted to meet up with Kwasi that night, but he'd had to go help his father with the sheep. They now sat sharing a small breakfast against one of the church's walls, looking up at the castle as the sun rose behind it. I only saw him that one time. He was elegant, I guess. I can't figure out his accent. It's Transylvanian, but it's different, too. Older or something. He didn't quite say it, and I had to leave before I heard too much, but I think he's somewhat revolutionary. He had a lot to say about how much in common Transylvania has with the two principalities, and I think he's not wild about the Ottomans or the Russians. Who are all the men in uniforms? They're called the Order of the Dragon. They're almost like Count Dracula's personal army. Well, I don't know if there's an army's worth of them, but he brought half a dozen with him. I played a game of Paths and Peasants with one. I'm guessing he won? I'm a well-regarded player, said Eon, pretending he'd suffered an affront. Oh, I'm sure, said Kwasi, laughing. People regard my play very well. The dragon captain complimented me. Eon didn't volunteer much more about the other guards. Kwasi wasn't exactly the jealous type, but maybe how much he admired their uniforms and camaraderie was something he'd keep to himself for now. All right, said Eon, I should head on up. I have a long day of sitting up there with nothing to do ahead of me. I'll walk you to the small gate, said Kwasi. He took his hand and they walked past a few rows of houses until they came to a stone wall with an iron gate in it. Eon wasn't aware of a time when the gate had ever been locked, and even if it had been, the wall would have been easy to climb over. Despite being almost June, it was another cold morning. A breeze blew across the wall. Maybe I'll make you a summer sweater for these cool days up on the hill, said Kwasi. They kissed and Eon moved toward the stairs and Kwasi started back to town, when a loud scream pierced the air. Kwasi turned and ran toward the stairs. Eon was a little ahead of him. A figure running at full speed crashed into Eon. He fell backwards, down a few of the stairs, and Kwasi rushed forward to stabilize them both. It was Lucia the housemaid. She was in tears. What is it? said Eon. She didn't speak, but pointed upward. Eon and Kwasi rushed up to see what it was. Someone was lying, face down, on the stairs. At first, Eon thought it was a boy, but getting closer, he saw it was a small, thin man. His feet were several steps above his head, which sat at an unnatural angle against the stone. A quantity of dark blood pooled under his neck. Getting closer, they saw that his tunic had several large gashes in it. Eon bent down to look at the man's face. On one of the 680 steps leading down from the castle, Cornell had apparently been attacked by a large animal and had fallen to his death sometime in the night. Cornell's Last Walk Of the four entirely unrelated events that led to Cornell's death that night, only one was the result of his own doing. Weeks ago, he'd misplaced one of Nicolay's cufflinks and had hidden its mate at the back of a drawer. That had been his fault. The dead swan, the hot kitchen, and the volcano had not. Cornell had wanted to go up to his room to read before going to sleep. If the swan hadn't died, he would have been safely in his bed within a few minutes' time. Instead, as he was about to head upstairs, Adrian intercepted him and asked him about the dead swan, where he'd been the night before, who he'd seen, who'd seen him, and so on. Just as Adrian's questions ended, the bell rang, meaning Nicolay wanted him. If Cornell had thought the bell had saved him, he'd have been wrong. He went from being interrogated by one boss to being berated by another. Nicolay had found the single cufflink in his drawer and had decided he wanted to wear the pair the next day. It didn't make any sense to call for Cornell then, rather than in the morning, but once he'd correctly guessed that Cornell had lost the other one, his anger had risen. Cornell endured ten solid minutes of insults, which wasn't terribly uncommon, due both to his own accident-prone manner and Nicolay's temper. Too upset to go to bed straight away, Cornell had gone downstairs to get a drink, but found the common room full of the Count's guards. The cooks were making something next door, and the fire, combined with the number of people gathered there, made the room very hot. 
Outside, it was another cool night, so Cornell decided to take a walk. Just over a year prior, in March 1815, Mount Tambora and the Dutch East Indies had erupted. Thunderous sounds were heard in the Spice Islands nearly 200 merfold away. Five days later, people in Sumatra described hearing gunfire, which was actually the sound of the next eruptions occurring far, far away. On the 29th of March, columns of flame turned the mountain into liquid fire. Ash covered everything. Trees were uprooted and washed into the sea. The cloud of volcanic dust altered the climate as far away as Europe and the United States, causing 1816 to be known as the year without a summer. Crops failed worldwide. Half a world away, it snowed in New York in June. If a volcano hadn't erupted a year earlier, the night of May 30, 1816 might not have been chilly, and Cornell might not have found the thought of a walk so appealing. If the common room hadn't been filled with Count Dracula's Order of the Dragon, and if the cooks hadn't been baking that night, he might have been content with a solitary drink. If he hadn't lost the cufflink, he wouldn't have wanted to go downstairs for a drink after being yelled at. If the swan hadn't died, he'd have been upstairs before Nicolay had rung the bell, and he'd have awoken at dawn the next morning like every other day. As it was, the moon was bright and Cornell was lost in his thoughts, cursing Nicolay's cruelty, so he didn't hear a large creature come up behind him. He didn't hear its low growl and snarl. A strong limb took a swipe at him and knocked him on his face. He rolled, screamed, and ran. His heart pounding, he looked back once at his attacker. Confused and terrified, he turned and ran until he came to the stairs. The thin man managed to run down several hundred of the steps until, finally, he slipped and broke his neck on the stone staircase, where he would be discovered by a housemaid hours later. The village might have believed that Cornell had simply fallen down the stairs, what with his reputation for being clumsy, had it not been for the full moon and the gashes on his back. Instead, rumors began to spread, and by the time Father Abraham had readied his homily for Mass on Sunday, there was only one thing on everyone's minds. Among the Thagoras Mountains of the Southern Carpathians, in a small village along the Argus River, on a cool May night, a werewolf had come to Wallachia. Thank you for listening. Chapter 2 was originally released in August of 19. With Cornell dead, readers were asked to vote on who would become Nicolay's new assistant, Stefan, Eon, or a Transylvanian referred to him by the Count. I won't spoil what they chose, but you'll find out in a few weeks' time. Next chapter, in two weeks, we'll check in with Father Abraham, who has a funeral to prepare and a superstitious town to calm down. You can follow Wallachia on Twitter at WallachiaNet or on the web at Wallachia.net.